You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not lost because I have a map. Now, my map doesn't talk to me. It doesn't fit on my dashboard unless I fold it up. But not once has it led me to an abandoned field where the discount appliance store should be. Yes, folks, created sometime after the first pounding of reeds to make papyrus and before signals surged through a silicon wafer, paper maps were our guides to getting around. We'll meet a man who still makes them. But first, we need to make our way to that part of the show. We'll just turn on this dashboard device here and see where it takes us. Turn left onto Bernardo Avenue. Then the destination is on your right. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, whether it's mounted on your dashboard or sitting in your palm, there is a good chance that your GPS device helps you get around. Global positioning lets us navigate unfamiliar roads, but we rely on it so much, scientists say we're letting our brains take the easy route. But GPS can also deepen our knowledge of the physical world by turning a ho-hum airplane flight into a geology expedition. And sensors that track wild animals may suggest how to more effectively protect vulnerable habitats. So is GPS leading the way or leading us astray? We are rerouting, rerouting. Global positioning satellites are up there in the sky somewhere, about 12,000 miles up actually. But how is GPS working for you here on Earth? I collect some of these stories and, and there's always something about somebody driving into a lake or driving down a, you know, a road that's a dead end or driving down some stairs in a park because something told them to turn that way. Journalist Greg Milner has been tracking our GPS hits and misses. He's not the only one collecting stories. So is cognitive scientist Julia Frankenstein from Darmstadt in Germany. I had a small email contact to a mountaineering rescue service in Canada who told me that they quite often now have to rescue people out in the wild who just lost track of their position. They had their GPS and it broke down. And they can't tell the rescuers where they are or how they came there. It's so common that the park rangers at Death Valley have a term for it called death by GPS because so many people at Death Valley have you know, met really gruesome fates by following their GPS turn-by-turn instructions, which take them deep into the desert instead of staying on the roads and following the posted signs. Now, most death by GPS incidents don't actually cause death or even serious injury. But if we define the term widely enough, every single one of us who's used GPS has been in at least a somewhat of a death by GPS situation where we realize at some point that, whoa, this is not right. Uh, something's wrong and I better get out of it. It would sound like there's a case to be made for ditching your GPS before you end up in a ditch. But like most of us, he's dependent on GPS, so it's not that simple. Put it this way, I, I don't want it to seem like I think GPS is, is a bad thing for the world. I mean, quite frankly, the world could not exist without GPS. I mean, never mind all the navigational and geolocational abilities. The fact that it's an incredibly accurate clock means that it runs all kinds of complex systems around the world that rely on exact timing from the financial markets to the electrical grid. So there's no way around it. Our world runs on it right now. But it didn't used to. 
all throughout history, we have used a combination of representational maps and memory to find our way. We use natural landmarks as route markers. But Dr. Julia Frankenstein says that cultures hooked on GPS are less attuned to seeing the physical world. You can look at other native tribes, maybe in Australia or in the Amazonas uh, region, and you find that they used route knowledge. And by that, they used landmarks. They remembered mountains, shores, constellations of the stars. One could actually also argue the opposite, that because we're freed from this necessity of thinking so much about where we're going, we can look out at the road. I think it's more like it's a contextual difference. Like, yeah, we may pass the opera house, but we really have no idea what that opera house is and where it is in relation to other things we've passed. Everything becomes kind of decontextualized. More than that, our reliance on GPS is affecting how much of a workout we give our neurons. Greg Milner's book is Pinpoint how GPS is changing technology, culture, and our minds. We all have something called the cognitive map, sort of like our hardwired ability to situate ourselves in the world and know where we are in relation to other things. You have a mental map of your flat normally. Most people are able to stand up in the night and follow their internal map to find the fridge or something else. It's hard to construct a mental map if you just follow directions. Continue straight, then use the right lane to keep right to merge onto US 101 South towards San Jose. Uh, what GPS looks like it's doing, and there's several studies that bear this out, is it's essentially making us use our cognitive maps less. Anyone who's taken a trip you know, through an unfamiliar area with turn-by-turn driving instructions, having no idea really where they are at any given moment, can attest to this feeling. Now, there's very, very, very preliminary evidence, I even hesitate to use the word evidence, that it could also be having a, a neurological effect on us. But what is almost definitely certain is that it's affecting our cognitive map, uh, essentially making us have weaker maps. Yeah. So, in other words, we simply don't really know where we are. We're just right. We're just some sort of soft, squishy interface between the GPS and the steering wheel. Yes, that's a good way of putting it, actually. So your cognitive circuitry is not getting the workout it might otherwise. In other words, GPS lets your brain take the easy route. And although you may feel you know exactly where you are, paradoxically, you are also lost. You may have less of a grasp on personal orientation and what's called wayfinding. Wayfinding isn't so much about getting from A to B. It's about the methods we use to get from A to B and how we situate ourselves in the world. And, and that seems like a kind of opaque topic, but it's very, very important to the ways in which we see the world. And this is what mental maps do for us. They improve our, our wayfinding. I mean, they really tell us where we are, what the meaning of here and there is. And again, that may sound sort of abstract, but I think it's really, really important. A GPS has a flexible resolution of the map. So you don't necessarily get the distance estimation right because it zooms in and out. And I always tell my friends, please turn it off. Try to go around with a map. I personally, I love maps. Maps are great because they give you all the information you need for traveling and for navigating. And with paper maps, actually, you have to use your brain. You have to construct a route. You have to remember a route. You have to remember landmarks. And you get an idea of the spatial relations between your starting locations, the landmarks in between, and your target location. Ah, uh, the paper map. I'm personally also a fan. But it's not clear that the generation raised on GPS can even read paper maps anymore. It's all anecdotal in a way, but I can tell you that in my anecdotal experience, that's absolutely true. And, and people you know, who I talk to who are under, I don't know, I'm going to say 25, usually readily cop to it. They say, yeah, we don't, I mean, we don't know how to read a map. We've never had to read maps. I really feel like that's going the way of, oh, I don't know, like cursive writing or something, something that's just going to be seen as an outdated skill that doesn't need to be taught. Because I can tell you right now, people are already losing the ability to read those things. GPS messes with our minds in other ways. It leads to a conceptual distortion by putting the viewer always in the center of the map. Now, of course, every single map projection gives us somewhat of a distorted view of the world. But you hit on something when you said that it puts us in the center. The navigator Harold Gaddy described three different types of navigation. 
there's a home-centered, location-centered, and self-centered. Self-centered is what we just sort of rely on today and just take for granted, and that is that we always place ourselves in the center. We don't need to know really where we are in relation to everything else because we can divine everything by latitude and longitude. And with GPS, we can even remove the latitude and longitude because our map program converts that to a little blue dot that we just look at on the map. Now, the opposite of that would be something like home-based navigation, which is what the earliest primitive societies would have used, where if they didn't understand the world at all, if they took 10 steps away from the campfire, they'd always be thinking, I'm 10 steps from the campfire, so to go back, I've got to turn around and walk 10 steps in the opposite direction. And so I think GPS is a very, very powerful manifestation of this idea that we just kind of take for granted of self-centered navigation and that we are always the center of our universe. And in a way, I think that's what makes death by GPS things possible because we forget that we don't actually know where we are all the time. We just take it for granted that this technology, this extension of ourselves is going to tell us. Greg Milner is a journalist and author of Pinpoint, How GPS is Changing Technology, Culture, and Our Minds. Julia Frankenstein is a cognitive scientist at Darmstadt Technical University in Germany. Well, when we fixate on our glowing glass screens, we may miss really seeing the physical world. But maybe GPS can also help us appreciate the world in a new way. An app called Flyover Country uses GPS to turn that patchwork of land between wheels up and landing into a thrilling geology expedition, complete with salt lakes, rocky outcrops, and glacial moraines. The app was created by Earth scientist Amy Mirbo and her colleagues at the University of Minnesota. Okay, Amy, so I'm flying over the American West. I'm at 30,000 feet. There are no clouds. So I can see the corrugated topography below. I fire. (laughs) Well, it is corrugated. So I fire up my app, Fly Over Country. What does it tell me? Assuming that you have loaded your flight path beforehand while you were still on airport Wi-Fi and saved it to your phone, what you'll see is a strip of brightly colored map overlaying on your regular map that each piece represents a different geologic formation. I happened to be in a plane most of yesterday Mm -hmm. coming from the east to the west. And, you know, you fly over uh, Utah, southern Utah, Nevada, and I see what look like ancient volcanic cones down there. But, of course, I'm not a geologist, and I don't know whether they're really ancient volcanic cones or just sort of round-shaped hills. Will Will it tell me something about them? It probably will. So, you know, not everything is in there. Not everything has had a Wikipedia article written about it or exists in one of these databases. Okay. So uh, if it happened to be one that it did recognize, uh, I don't know, a crater lake in in Oregon or Washington, whatever it is, which, by the way, I don't think has anything to do with craters. I think that that's volcanic, but that's... It is volcanic, yep. Yeah, okay. But is it going to tell me something, or is it going to give me a link to a, uh, an article on the web? What, Where does it uh, direct me? It has, if Crater Lake is within your flight path, it has already pulled the Wikipedia article that is associated with that data point, and that is saved on your phone. Um, it doesn't have the images, because we don't want it to be a super gigantic phone-destroying download for you. You're going to be on airport Wi-Fi, which tends to be not very good. But yeah, it'll pull the Wikipedia article. Those tend to be pretty rich. The one on Crater Lake, I bet, would be quite extensive. It was formed when Mount Mazama blew up about 7,600 years ago. My goodness. All right, so my understanding is you put in your flight path. You're going from, say, Atlanta to San Francisco. You put that in at the airport before you get on board. And the reason for doing that is so that it can download the relevant information between those two points. But how does it know where I am at any given point? I mean, maybe it could guess, but but how does it know that I'm over a, you know, crater lake or something? Yeah, well, your, your GPS and your phone does work in airplane mode. It can be a little bit tough if you're not in a window seat because the hull of the plane may block some of the signal. But if you're in a window seat, you can almost always get a signal, and then you see exactly where you are on the map, and that doesn't change with airplane mode or anything like that. All right. Some of the more interesting features, Amy, are are things that are big, really, really big, so big that you don't actually appreciate them if you're just driving through the countryside. Yesterday, for example, flying over western Colorado, I could clearly see Pike's Peak sticking up from the Rockies. Very cool. But if you're in downtown Denver, I mean, yeah, you can see Pike's Peak, but it's not that impressive looking. 
What would fly over country? What sort of things would fly over country? Tell me about Pikes Peak, for example. I mean, you know, other than there's a you know funicular railway to go up the side. Yeah, well, it would tell you that. It would probably give you the history because that's in the Wikipedia article. I believe it's named after Zebulon Pike, who has some Minnesota connections. And it would probably tell you something about how tall the mountain is relative to the other ones in that area, and probably something about how it was formed, which is one of the sort of interesting things as Earth scientists, the Flyover Country team, is really interested in bringing sort of the wonder of nature and the forces of the Earth to the general public while you're up there looking out and thinking, well, what is that? That's really something. And and what about those glacier scars that you see when you're in places like, I don't know, Wisconsin or maybe even Minnesota? Yeah, absolutely. Or even probably on Pikes Peak, you might be able to recognize some of those features. And sort of, again, as Earth scientists, we know that once you see those things once, you tend to pick them up the next time you see them, even if you're not necessarily told to look for them. So glaciers and the remains, the scrapes from glaciers, whether it's on a mountain or flatland out here in Minnesota and Wisconsin, um, you can start to recognize the lumps and bumps, whether you're in on the airplane or on the ground, because of course the app can be used on the ground as well. You don't have to be traveling. You can just be sitting on your porch and maybe exploring Greenland or Antarctica or wherever you might like. There's also some archaeology built into this app, right? Yeah, there's fossil localities. So certainly there are Wikipedia points that will show digs and places where remains of critters and humans have been found. The databases that show those tend to blur the locations a little bit so that, say, you know, fossil hunters who are not professionals or folks who are out to sort of loot can't go to those locations using that database, and so they can't really use our app to do that either. That's a question that we get fairly often. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, of course you can't see dino bones from 30,000 feet, so what is it telling me? I mean, could I possibly envision how the landscape below me might have looked 100 million years ago or, or, or not? Yeah, possibly, and partly it's to sort of show you that there's a lot of stuff going on. So one of the things we have in there is um, core samples from lakes. That's near and dear to my heart. That's what I do as an earth scientist. And you can't really see the core samples from, you know, the air either. You can't see the mud at the bottoms of lakes. But that and the dinosaurs show you that there's science going on everywhere. And you think, oh, this is, there's all these localities right around my hometown. There's interesting stuff that people are doing right here. There's a resource that people have put together that we're hoping to add that shows the plate tectonic reconstructions, right? So where the continental plates used to be relative to whatever point on the globe you might be flying over and where there used to be oceans and the topography of the land. Um, We're hoping to add that too because that gets you to think about where the fossils are and where they were when the critters were alive. Now, flyover country is coming out of academia. Uh, but, you know, the possibilities here are so, you know, sort of boundless. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to say, is there any thought about, I don't know, turning this over to a company or starting a company and, and just expanding it in all directions? Yes, um, because it would provide some sustainability for the app beyond the point where NSF might be able to support us at that level. And so we are actually in discussions with some in-flight entertainment companies. So these are the folks who provide all the movies and games and moving maps um, when you're on the airplane, whether it's on the seat back or streaming to your device, to get our maps into the plane to provide additional information beyond what is typically provided in the moving map on the in-flight entertainment. I have to say, I never look at the movies. I always look at the map all the way. Well, they say that a lot of people look at the map. Um, We were told by one of these folks that 50% of airline passengers look at the map. And at the same time, most of the maps in airplanes, there's not a ton on them, right? There's some towns, there's a satellite image, and there's a big giant airplane. But we would like to really connect that with what you're flying over because you can see so much from the airplane and you get such a different perspective. Amy Mirbo, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Great. Thank you so much. Amy Mirbo is an earth scientist at the University of Minnesota.
Coming up, another benefit of GPS. It lets scientists map the wanderings of diverse animal species, from crocodiles to mountain lions to photoplankton. You may be surprised to find out where the wild things are. Next. Give us a moment. We're just rerouting, rerouting on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. For centuries, the way to track an animal was to follow the physical clues it left behind. This often meant slogging through forest or jungle undergrowth, trying to find paw prints, picking up feathers, or examining scat. Now a suite of modern technologies, including GPS, allow scientists to follow the critters from afar without lacing up a boot. By tagging animals with GPS devices, scientists have amassed a deluge of data on the movements of a wide variety of species. And a reminder of how GPS works, there's a bevy of GPS satellites in endless orbit around the Earth, and we know their positions very, very accurately. The satellites transmit signals that your GPS device picks up, and depending on the times at which these signals arrive, your device can do a little bit of geometry and figure out where you are, whether you are you or a California mountain lion. Such data on lions and other animals have now been turned into maps. Graphic artist and former National Geographic design editor Oliver Uberti and University College London geographer James Cheshire have created a beautiful book, Where the Animals Go, which, we note, is about digital data but is a collection of paper maps. Now that we have a better idea just where the wild things are, in the air, on land, or at sea, interesting in itself, this can allow us to more effectively plan wildlife protection areas. We wanted to show an array of taxa, right? Like People tend to have a, uh, a mammal bias or a bias towards charismatic animals like uh, elephants and snowy owls. And while we do have elephants and snowy owls in the book, we thought it was fascinating that scientists are tracking all types of animals across all the different taxa. So we've got crocodiles and we have pythons and we even have plankton, uh, animals that you would never even think could be tagged, like a jellyfish, where they actually tie the tag around a jellyfish waist. Who knew jellyfish had waists? <laughs> um, so really for us, it was about um, surprising the reader with the great diversity of animals being tracked and the great ingenuity of the biologists doing the tracking. James, these animals are tagged with technology that is similar to what's in our cell phones, but they really give these sensors quite a workout. These are animals that are swimming and flying. They're going through snow. They're sweating. I wonder if that would interrupt the signal. And I wonder if animals ever try to pick off these devices. Yeah, the devices themselves, I mean, are pretty resilient. So um, if you think of a, a seal that's dives to 1200 meters then that's a, a huge amount of pressure on the tag so the the tag itself it's really solid epoxy or plastic you've got other tags that are designed to pop off quite quickly so there's some tags that they suction cup onto the side of or the top of a whale that only lasts for 12 hours and that's designed to come off after that period of time in one case the scientists attached GPS collars to 25 baboons from a troop of 46 baboons in central Kenya. And these baboons, they're very dexterous, they know what they're doing, and so developing a collar that could stay uh, around the baboon's neck without the baboon unscrewing it and taking it off, uh, I think was one of the big challenges that particular group of researchers had to overcome. And they, these collars were set up to record a location once a second for four weeks. Now, if you do the math there, 25 baboons once a second for four weeks, you're already talking more than 20 million data points coming in. And this was able to give us these broad patterns of where the baboons went each day when they woke up and climbed down from their sleeping trees and set out for their daily forage. 
But what the researchers were most interested in was the social behavior, second by second, of how a troop of baboons decides collectively where to go each day. And that second by second data gave us this fine scale ability to isolate 57,000 individual baboon decisions as they pushed and pulled on each other, making a group collective decision of, hey, this is where we're going to go today. Now, why maps? Scientists have the data sets. They're used to looking at data sets. They know how to create graphs. What is it about a map that draws us in? One of the great threats to many of the species in the book is habitat fragmentation. Increasingly, human development encroaches on the habitat of these animals. And that's really an abstract intellectual concept, habitat fragmentation. It's so much easier to understand and to empathize with when you can see it. And when we track these individual animals, we can show you where an individual went, where it's constricted, where in highways and other human development keeps them from making the journeys that they would typically make. And there's a great example right here from California of mountain lions in and around Los Angeles. And like you really see it. You can say like they are trapped on an island. Look at that. They're surrounded by roads and they're trying to get out. They're pushing the perimeter and they can't get out. I have your book in front of me and it's turned to uh, the pages entitled The Crocodiles Best Left Alone. <laughs> and this introduces us to a couple crocodiles in Australia, northern Australia, and one is named Weldon. Now, <laughs> Weldon is this red line along the coast of Australia, the northern part of Australia. And apparently humans moved him from point A to point B, and he went back to point A. Can you tell us the story of Weldon? Yeah, well, the situation there is people are afraid of crocodiles, and they, they see these crocodiles maybe in their backyards or you know in public areas, and they think, well, something's got to be done about that. Maybe we should kill them all. And then some people come out and say, well, let's not kill them. Let's just relocate them. And what it turns out, we've learned from the scientists, is that the real dangerous crocodiles are the really, really massive males. Those are like residents that stay put in their rivers. The ones that you often encounter in public spaces are the smaller ones that got pushed out from the rivers by the big territorial resident males. And it's these smaller, like, runtier crocodiles that become visible, and then we decide, okay, we're going like, to get rid of them, so we'll relocate them. In the case of Weldon, he gets relocated to the other side of Cape York Peninsula, dropped into the water in August 17, 2004, and... Five months later, by January 2005, he has swum all the way around Cape York Peninsula back to the exact spot where he was captured in the first place. And, and this is a case that when you see it graphically, when you see it on this map, you saying that is one thing. I have to think about it as abstract. When you look at it on this map, he's quite a swimmer. His route hugs the coastline of this northern part of the continent near the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, we, we often talk about reptilian brains rather dismissively and you look at these maps and tracks and you have to think twice about what's really happening in their heads how did they do it we don't know but what we do know is that they clearly have some sort of map and compass sense in their head a map sense to say hey i'm here and i want to be there and a compass sense to keep them on the right bearing until they get there just remarkable okay now, James, what is the key to making a good map? The maps in this book are quite varied. The graphics are different depending on the animal that's in motion. But you have to make them readable, right? Because it's for the general public in this case, I think. So what is the key to making a readable map? That's a really good question. And it's something I discuss a lot with my students, actually. Um, it's a really hard thing to do, actually, creating a, a good map that engages people and I think the reason it's hard is because you have to imagine what the viewer wants to see and you have to make your decisions about how things look how the colors work together how the map is balanced you know you don't want something that one part of the map is screaming at you and the other part is disappearing in the background you want something that that people can look at it and understand immediately what's going on in, in the case of this book, we were concerned about animals and what they were doing. So 
the content of the maps had to show some of the conditions and information that the animals were experiencing themselves. so there wouldn't have been much use in us putting very detailed road networks onto a map when the story we're telling is about birds. you know birds are more interested in the flow of wind, for example, because that's what they have to fly through. so you have to make a series of editorial decisions about what you include and those decisions have to match the story that you're trying to tell. Can you give an example of an editorial decision you you had to make on making one of these maps? Yeah, so um, one of my favourite stories really in the book is about a seal called Rudolph and he's one of thousands of seals that have been tagged around Antarctica collecting all kinds of interesting data about the ocean, so ocean temperatures and how salty the seawater is, as well as their locational information about their journeys. Now, if you're a seal, then we mapped the journey in on a blank canvas, but it seemed a bit flat. So actually what we went about doing was, for a seal, we had the ocean depth data, so the bathymetry, so the landscape of the ocean floor. And on top of that, we were putting things like the ice sheets, and some of the key land masses and so on. So we were quite sparse in in some of the information we're trying to show, but also the stuff we we did select, we wanted to be as rich as possible. And I mean, I was was amazed to discover that seals routinely dive 1,200 metres down, um, so over a kilometre underwater. And when I first saw the data from the tags and I saw these numbers of 1,200 metres, I thought that was a mistake. I thought something had gone wrong. I couldn't believe that an animal could hold its breath and swim deeper than a kilometre and then come back up again. There's another example in, in the book that I just love, but it's of seagulls. And perhaps some of your listeners are like me, who when I go to the beach and I see seagulls, I just tend to think that they live around that beach, that they're residents. I was very surprised in creating this book to learn that seagulls up in uh, the UK or in in Belgium or Netherlands will travel as far south as Senegal on the west coast of Africa in the winter. But many seagulls in the colony that we were studying made a much shorter migration. About 80% of the breeding colony was going to one spot on the border of France and Belgium. Researchers were puzzled what's going on. Why are they just up and leaving the colony every day and going to this random spot? So they sent a researcher down to investigate. Sure enough, there was a potato chip factory that was discarding all of their subpar chips into the parking lot, and the gulls found it. turns out if you give a colony of gulls access to free food, they will take you up on that. These are seagulls after my own heart. On the other hand, speaking of heart, it's heartbreaking too because potato chips aren't good for us and they're probably not good for seagulls. There's all kinds of strange journeys that the the researchers have been able to detect. One of my favourites from the uh, birds section of the book is these storks that have stopped doing their lengthy migrations from Europe to southern Africa and they're stopping off at rubbish dumps in Spain and Morocco and they're spending the winter there feeding on junk food rather than flying further south over the Sahara and eating more natural prey. Well... Oliver, you got started, as my understanding, and really hooked into this project by a map that you created to accompany a National Geographic article about elephant poaching. And you, you said that working on this map engaged you in a new way in the life of an individual animal. How so? Well, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how maps can connect us, how they can make us empathize, how they can help us see the lives of individual animals. And when I was working on this map, there was a team of us at National Geographic and uh, photographer Michael Nichols and ecologist Mike Fay had brought back this data from a single elephant named Annie that they had collared uh, in southeastern Chad. And they wanted to see how vulnerable Annie was to poaching outside the boundaries of Zakama National Park. I got this data back from the GPS collar and I plotted it and I'm looking at it and you know, I'm not just seeing a red line on this map. I'm seeing Annie. I'm seeing her uh, beeline to the best vegetation after the rains. I'm seeing her wait till nightfall to avoid crossing roads because she knows that roads mean humans, and historically in that area, humans mean danger. So you're seeing all these decisions in the turns of her track. And after 86 days over 1,000 miles in 2006, you see her line stop. And 
when the ecologist, Mike Fay, got back to Chad to go to her last recorded GPS location, he found her tattered corpse and that of about eight of her companions. And Annie was the victim of poaching? That's correct, yes. And when you're making a map of an animal's movements and an animal's life and ultimately an animal's death, you know, it, it changes something in you. Well, at least it changed something for me. You know, this was no longer lines and colors and dots. These were lives. And uh, that's what we try and do in this book. And it's why I wanted to go back and tell the story of other elephants and other crocodiles and other, other animals all over the planet uh, to help people have that same experience that I did when you look at a map and you see a line and you realize it's not a line, it's a living thing. Well, finally, gentlemen, I wonder if these maps also suggest solutions for protecting the integrity of animal roots and their habitats. It charts a path of compromise, perhaps, in the way that we interact with the environment. So if we understand our behaviors better and we understand animal behavior better, it's this idea that we can be adaptable and we can compromise um, that I think data you know, gives us some, some clues uh, as, as to how to achieve that. In Kenya, there's a great example. Uh, Save the Elephants worked with the government and a number of other uh, local organizations to lobby a construction company to build underpasses beneath an elevated railway that was being built from the capital of Nairobi down to the coast of Mombasa. Now, Kenya is a place that doesn't have level of infrastructure and development that we have in our country, but they might get to that point in the coming century. So the question is, can... Kenya be one of the first places on earth to start building infrastructure with wildlife in mind. And Save the Elephants collared 10 elephants to test whether or not the elephants were using the underpasses that they had had constructed underneath this railway. And within 24 hours of collaring them, already elephants were using the underpasses and continuing their migrations between the west and east half of Sabo National Park. Oliver Uberti, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having us. James Cheshire, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you. Oliver Uberti is a graphic artist and former senior design editor at National Geographic. James Cheshire is a geographer at University College London. Their co-authored book is Where the Animals Go, Tracking Wildlife with Technology in 50 Maps and Graphics. Now that we've gone deep into digital, let's try old school. Coming up, meet a man who still makes paper maps and test your own map reading skills. We are rerouting, rerouting on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we've heard about some of the ways in which GPS helps us appreciate the physical landscape, from learning geology from the comfort of your window seat to learning where wild animals go and how we might protect their habitats. But we've also heard that our reliance on satellite navigation can be a downer and that young people especially don't seem to know how to read a paper map. But this millennial begs to differ. My name is Leo Toronto Slack. I'm 19 and I'm from Oakland, California. And I've heard how people 
under 25 can't read maps. But to me, it just seems the same as reading a map on your phone from Google Maps or Apple Maps. I have tried reading a paper map, and it it seems pretty easy as long as you can figure out which direction to put the map. That might be the hardest part. Although I don't represent my generation in every way, I do feel like I have a very good sense of direction, even without a map, just knowing which direction is which and where I came from and where I'm headed. To consider Leo's point of view that paper maps are straightforward to read and that you might not need a map at all if you have a good sense of direction, which he claims he does, we have stepped outside with an actual paper map. Yes, indeed. And it's a lovely one, too. It's got all sorts of nifty stuff on it. Okay, so open up this map. Is that not a work of art? It is. Now the question is, will you be able to fold it again when it comes to folding Listen, it? Yeah, that was a test to get into the Roman legions 2,000 years ago, whether you could refold a paper map. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this paper map of Mountain View, and Molly and I are going to try and use it to get from here on Bernardo Avenue over to Olive Avenue. Now that's not very far. It's a couple of blocks. Now, Leo might be able to point to north, but of course that doesn't tell him where Olive Avenue is, so that's not good enough for navigation. Now, Leo said that he had no trouble with paper maps, and I think that's because he was thinking of paper street maps. Because street maps are essentially GPS maps, but they're not electronic, right? So if you can read GPS, you can probably read a street map. I think we have to cross this little meridian, but yeah. we'll do it. Do you think we ought to look, look out and see where we're walking here? Interesting that you say cross this meridian, because, of course, that's longitude and latitude, and you don't get that on your GPS. Whereas this paper map, it's got that stuff. You know, what if you're one of those people who likes to hike in the mountains or whatever? You know, then you might want a topographic map, because it matters to you, that third dimension, and that GPS doesn't give it to you. Well, there's a little bit of topography on this map here. Yeah. Um, can you read it? Well, sure. And, and in fact, they've used two different indicators of the altitude. One is hashiering, as it's called. You know, they just sort of make little shaded representations of the mountains. It's just a picture of the mountains. The other thing they do is they have, they have contour lines. So every 100 feet difference in altitude or whatever it is on that map, there's another line. It's, you know, it's very, very quantitative, actually. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more in certain kinds of maps than just the streets, and there's so much information that I think it's worth learning a few skills how to read a paper map. By the way, do you think you can get us back, Molly? Yes, I think I can get us back. Well, this sound here, Seth, is music to Tom Hedberg's ears. Are you going to try to fold that map now? Uh, uh, yes. Have we got 20 minutes? <laughs> okay. Tom Hedberg knows that GPS is here to stay, but that some of us still want to keep our hand in navigating the old-fashioned way. He's the owner of Hedberg Maps, and he has found a niche market for specialized paper maps. Seth, we just need to turn down this road here. You sure? Okay. He contends that paper is better than LED screens for showing you the best biking routes, location of ballparks across the country, or where to find dog-friendly breweries. I hope they don't serve dogs. At a time when the map-making industry is contracting, this Minneapolis mapmaker is still in business, creating navigational devices that, you know, they never need batteries. I'm not ready to bury the paper map because there are many, many map lovers out there who want them. And also, I believe it's a medium that has a lot of effectiveness that you don't find in digital form. Maps used to be given away, I mean, left and right. You'd pull into a gas station, you'd buy $3 worth of gas, and you would grab a handful of maps. Depending on where you were going, that's obviously not the case anymore. The map industry seems to be, I don't know, maybe imploding. What niche have you created for yourself? You know, there's no question, Seth, that it has imploded. But there are so many interests out there in the world of people wanting to see just particular information of theme maps, whether it be just where the dog parks are, just where the bike trails are, something that speaks to them and their interests that a general map doesn't do as effectively. Well, tell me what the advantage is of a paper map. I mean, what can it do for me that that digital map I can call up on my phone can't do? Just put a map on a wall at one point and you'll see how people go up to it and start telling stories. They start sharing things. They start remembering where they were, something that happened, where, and they start dreaming about where they want to go or what they want to do. And so one advantage, I think, is a social advantage. I believe that there's an interactivity uh, that connects people 
in addition, it gives you the big picture, especially I love the fact I've always talked of our maps as big picture and hearing the name of your show, it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful tie-in. What do you find are the most popular maps that you're publishing? I mean, are they the dog parks in Minneapolis or just the streets of Minneapolis? What, you know, we've seen a quite a resurgence in uh, maps that deal with bicycle trails. And I think it's the, due to the popularity of how uh, people are, are biking more and more. In addition, the maps, again, that we do that show the big picture in our series of college maps that just locate schools. And they don't do a lot more, but they give they, they actually thin out the information, the clutter that doesn't matter. And they show just the things people are looking at. And when you have people, whether they're from overseas or potential students in the United States, looking at what school they might want to attend, just understanding the where of schools is effective. So in other words, the paper map can be more specialized, really, than you know the maps I'm going to get online. I mean, I can go to Google Earth and I can see topography and roads and railroads and all that stuff. Yeah. But if I indeed want to see the dog parks or if I, I want to see colleges in that area or, or even ice cream stands, I mean, that could be a specialized map. But couldn't you also do that digitally? I mean, you, you can. And that's what I was sort of thinking about as you were asking that question is that, you know, I'm not here to diss digital maps and, you know, whether it be Google Earth or whatever. They are powerful tools and they are, you know, and I personally use them quite a bit. I just think they're not the only tool. They're not the only way. And in fact, I think there are more tools. Whereas I think paper maps become something a little different that when you touch something, it, it connects you emotionally to it in another way. Yeah. Well, I, I have to confess, if you were to look at the walls of my house, you would find maps all over the place. And, and some of them are from a couple of hundred years old. I mean, I, I think they're reproductions, but whatever. And, you know, they're not there so that I can navigate my way around Europe. They're there because they are not only works of art, but they show how people, I don't know, imagined the world, knew the world uh, some time ago. I'll be the first to say I'm not an expert on antique maps and I don't know a lot about them other than I know there's quite a demand. Recently, there was a, uh, in the local paper, there was an article about my firm and it was fascinating because right after that article, I had people just stopping by our office, calling nonstop, emailing, and I really thought of myself as a map therapist. People just wanted to talk about maps. They wanted to say, I miss paper maps, because there's no question that the uh, paper maps are, are not as readily available as they, as they used to be. I mean, you pointed out the millions of maps that were given away in service stations, and there's no question that was, that was an era. But there's still a demand, and there's still an interest in people wanting them. In the old days, Tom, and old days maybe more than 100 years ago now, sure. you really had to do things like figure out the longitude and latitude of a city or a, a yeah. coastline of, of the Atlantic seaboard was. I mean, accuracy was difficult. It was very difficult to make an accurate map. I mean, there were hundreds of years spent trying to figure out how to do that. You don't have to do that anymore, do you? So we've been making maps about 25 years. And obviously, so we predate you know, the whole digital revolution of making maps. But in the early days, we actually did do a tremendous amount of field work on the ground, ground truthing, because the source material that we would receive was not very accurate. And so we actually, we cared so much about accuracy. And in those days, we'd go out and drive streets. And we would go out and, uh, especially on larger scale pedestrian level maps, we'd walk the streets. Um, increasingly, the source material is tremendously better. So when you get something digitally from a municipality, now it's pretty darn accurate. Also in say, in the point of say like Google, you see the Google cars out there driving all the streets. They understand that you have to drive streets to make them accurate. So, you know, it has changed. And I'm not talking 100 years ago, and you are absolutely correct. One of the challenges is that so many sources out there are just replications of other things people have done that bad coastlines or erroneous spellings or something often just gets transferred on from map to map to map to map. We've talked a lot in this show about the benefits of GPS, but I just wonder if there's any indication from where you sit that people have somehow lost the ability to read a paper map, to even understand what it means. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think also that people don't quite understand their environment the same way as if they had been reading a paper map. 
So, for instance, the first time I ever did an in-car navigation system, my wife and I were traveling in another state, and we had a rental car, and it was all kind of new. And we said, let's try this. You know, I just, I wanted to see how it worked. And we did it. And, you know, there were some errors. It took us to a movie theater that was, you know, 30 miles away instead of one around the corner and stuff. You know, but all that's gotten better and better and better. But it it was interesting because at the end of the trip, we looked at each other and said, I don't even understand where we were. I mean, we didn't understand the environment. We didn't have a context. We had just been turning right in 300 feet rather than sort of not only looking at a map and saying, here's where we're going to go, but when you're looking at it, you're seeing other things on the map. You start studying it, and it's really, to me, like a, a folding book. I mean, you're reading and understanding an area in a way that you don't do if you're just following GPS directions. Tom Hedberg, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. Tom Hedberg is a map maker, and he's the owner of Hedberg Maps in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, to the question of whether or not GPS is leading the way or leading us astray, I guess the answer is it depends. Well, yes. Of course, there are times when you really do need it. You're finding the address of a party somewhere. You've never been to that part of the city. It's a real help. But, you know, I, I almost never use it myself, to be really honest. I like maps. I know that you like maps. Have you always loved paper maps? I have. I'll give you a personal story. My earliest recollections from childhood, aside from being in the crib at some point, was sitting on the floor of the kitchen. My mom gave me some paper toweling, some crayons and pencils, and I was making maps of North America, having a lot of trouble with all the islands off the uh, Pacific coast, to be honest. Yep, that's what I was doing. I was copying these maps out of, a, uh, out of an atlas we had. Well, here's one test we could all do is occasionally turn off GPS and see if we can navigate by memory or by using a paper map. Yeah. Or, or just having your internal map, as we've been discussing. If you can tell which way is north by the you know, position of the sun or something, you know, that might save you. Well, thanks to the team members who always know where they are, and that is stuck with us. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, operations manager Barbara Vance, and intern Sarah Derwin. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the nature of habitable planets. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Rerouting, Rerouting. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, but you feel lost as to where to go, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because, after all, GPS is radio-based, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. 